Welcome listeners, but take heed. We will say whatever we need to share our knowledge, thoughts, and joy, and even things that do annoy. So join us now, but be aware. We have a tendency to swear. We'll dial it back a little bit. But frankly, we don't give a shit. Welcome to Just Keep Rolling, a Harry Potter book movie compare and contrast podcast. I'm Ellen, the co-host with the most. And and how are you going to finish that? The most what? The most awesomest co-host ever, Katie. Duh. Yeah, that sounds, sounds pretty okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll go right into the rolling rehash. Last week, we discussed Chapter 6, Gilderoy Lockhart, and the corresponding film scenes. Just like a pervy gardener, Professor Sprout is dirty. Just like Clarissa, Hermione explains it all. Just like an overexcited Labradoodle, Colin spazzes over Harry. Just like a toddler, Lockhart wants all of the attention. Just like a prayer, the Cornish Pixies will take you there, as long as there is the top of a chandelier. And just like Millhouse, Longbottom is hoping that everything comes up Neville this year. But alas, he ends up wondering, why is it always me? During episode 24, Lockhartception, our Potter pondering was, can Thestral skeletons be seen by those who haven't seen death? Carly initially says that she thinks that the magic goes completely through them. It is part of their being, so even in death they can't be seen by those who haven't seen death. Then she comes back and says that it is interesting to think about. When a wizard dies, all the spells that they have currently placed on stuff dies with them. So would the magic of the Thestral die with it? Dominic doesn't think so, since it was never specified that their life force is what kept them invisible. If anything, their entire existence would be unknown if not for tragedy. He says that he thinks they exist as the world's explanation, that beauty can be found in hardship. So in hardship, they can be seen. Wow, that's really deep. Right? I like it. Kristen posted the mind-blown emoji. Speaking of mind-blowing, Dave actually posted his own pondering. He had a great question, asking if dead wizards who couldn't see Thestrals when they were alive would be able to see them when they are dead. Like if the house ghost couldn't see a Thestral when they were living, would they be able to see them once they died, you mean? Yeah. And I'm inclined to think that they would be able to because how much closer to death can you get? However, we do later learn that witches and wizards become ghosts because they aren't really willing to accept death and therefore move on. So would the very nature that makes them a ghost also prevent them from properly processing death and consequently not allow them to see Thestrals? Maybe? Like, I think it would depend on how they die. Like, a severely traumatic death could be enough to make them see death so they see Thestrals, but not want to let go of life so they become a ghost. But then if they died in their sleep or something where they don't realize when they die, it wouldn't have enough of an effect to make them see the Thestrals. I could see that. So someone like the Bloody Baron could probably see Thestrals since he killed himself and became a ghost as penance for his actions. But then someone like Professor Binns, who likely still doesn't even know he is a ghost, wouldn't be able to. Exactly. That was a really good Potter pondering, Dave. Right? He also shared his own two cents, saying that he would guess that since a Thestral in itself is a magical creature and isn't choosing to be invisible like some sort of magical chameleon, he thinks that their invisibility would be maintained after their death. 
Which makes sense to me. I still think that when you're walking along and suddenly trip for no reason, you're really tripping over a Thestral skeleton. Which would go a long way to explain my clutziness. Seriously, right? You must have one at the bottom of your stairs the way you keep falling down them. I must. There must be a dead (laughs) Thestral just hanging out down there because I fall down the stairs so much. Literally, guys, she's told me like on three different occasions about falling down the stairs. Not that I have any room to talk as I have fallen downstairs myself. Well, my problem is that two of those three times I've been holding my child. So it's a danger to everyone involved, really. But I'm the one who gets hurt the most. That's because you've got those mother instincts that allow you to fall and protect the child. I do. The most recent time, Ginny just looked at me and went, ow. (laughs) Like, that was it. She's just like, ow. Like, I think that hurt, but I don't know what to say. (laughs) But anyway, our trivia question last week was, how long was Harry stuck in detention with Professor Lockhart? Lockhart was convinced that Harry was hearing voices simply because he was drowsy, since he had been there for nearly four hours. Great Scott! Spooky how time flies when one is having fun. Spooky. (laughs) Congratulations goes to Dave. He made it there within minutes of the episode publishing, saying four hours and the code word hashtag fan mail. Once again, Carly was right on the heels of the winner, but said she was delayed because Podbean wouldn't load the episode. I actually noticed that too on my end. Even after it eventually posted, I could access the episode, but it was taking forever to download when it normally downloads instantaneously. Not that you need to download them to play them, but they do tend to run smoother than if you stream them. Plus, Podbean lets us track our downloads, and it's really satisfying to watch that number grow. It really is. Please download us. (laughs) I also want to give a shout out to Jackson. He wasn't the first one to answer, but he did show up a few hours later with an even more specific correct answer, saying almost four hours. Because Lockhart does say it's been nearly four hours, not four hours on the nose. Right, well, we will of course accept four hours, so still good job, Dave. But nice work to Jackson, too, for being more precise with his answer. It's totally something I would do, so I approve. (laughs) Not would do. You have done that. Like, a lot. I mean, you're not wrong. I, I, I can't even argue that. Sure can't. So let's just keep rolling into Chapter 7, Mudbloods and Murmurs, and the corresponding film scenes. Chapter 7, Mudbloods and Murmurs Over the next several days, Harry spends a lot of time trying to avoid Lockhart and Colin Creevy. On Friday morning, Ron's wand is still malfunctioning and even strikes Professor Flitwick between the eyes, causing a large green boil to appear. So Harry is really glad when they reach the weekend. The trio is planning on visiting Hagrid Saturday morning, but he is instead awoken much earlier than he wants by Oliver Wood, who is insisting on starting their new training regime bright and early. He gets dressed, leaves a note for Ron, and heads out to the Quidditch pitch, running into Colin Creevy along the way. Colin has the developed photo, and Harry is pleased to see his photographic self putting up a fight, refusing to be dragged into view. Colin asks Harry to sign it, and he says no, saying he needs to get to Quidditch practice. Colin insists on following him to watch, and babbles the entire way there. Harry resigns himself to explain the rules of Quidditch, and only manages to shake him when he arrives at the changing rooms. The rest of the team is already there, though mostly still asleep. 
Wood holds up a large diagram of a Quidditch pitch and drones on and on about his new tactics. When he finally finishes and asks for questions, George wants to know why he didn't tell them all of this yesterday when they were still awake. Wood begins lecturing them about how they should have won last year, but didn't due to circumstances outside their control. So he wants them to train harder than before. He leads them outside to finally start practicing, and Harry sees Ron and Hermione sitting in the stands, and they're surprised that they aren't finished yet. Practice finally officially starts, and they soon notice Colin in the stands clicking away on his camera. Wood is worried that he's a Slytherin spy, but Harry says he is in Gryffindor, and George says that Slytherin doesn't need a spy because they're there in person. Wood angrily tells the Slytherins that they need to leave because he booked the pitch for the day, and Flint produces a special note from Professor Snape, giving them permission to use the pitch to train their new seeker, Draco Malfoy. Fred recognizes him as Lucius Malfoy's son, and Flint says that it's funny they mention Draco's father because he generously gifted seven Nimbus 2001 broomsticks to the Slytherin team. Ron and Hermione walk over to see what's going on and find out about the brooms too. Draco makes fun of the old brooms that the Gryffindor team has, and Hermione says at least no one on the Gryffindor team had to buy their way in. They got in on pure talent. Malfoy causes an uproar by calling her Mudblood in response. Ron tries to curse Malfoy, but his taped wand malfunctions and causes him to start belching up slugs. Colin tries to take a picture, but Harry tells him to get out of the way, and he and Hermione take Ron to Hagrid's. As they arrive, Professor Lockhart is exiting Hagrid's hut, and the three of them hide to avoid him. Once he is out of sight, they knock on Hagrid's door. He answers, initially looking grumpy, but brightens once he sees it's the trio, and says he was worried it was Lockhart coming back. He sits Ron down and gives him a large copper basin, saying better out than in. Harry asks Hagrid what Lockhart wanted, and Hagrid says he was trying to tell him how to get Kelpies out of a well, and going on about a banshee he banished, and adding that he didn't think it was true. Hermione comes to Lockhart's defense, saying that Dumbledore thought he was the best man for the job. Hagrid reveals that he was the only man. No one wants the job because they are starting to think it's jinxed. He changes the subject by asking who Ron was trying to curse. Harry says that Malfoy called Hermione something bad, and Ron confirms that it was bad. He called her a mudblood. Hagrid looks to Hermione, and she says that he did, but she didn't know what it means. Ron explains that it is a foul name for someone who is muggle-born and says that it doesn't make any difference anyway. He points out that Neville is pureblood but can barely stand a cauldron upright, and Hagrid says they haven't invented a spell that Hermione can't do. Ron says that it's a disgusting thing to call someone, and it's mad because most wizards are half-blood anyways or they would have died out. Hagrid tells Ron that he understands why he tried to curse Malfoy, but it's probably a good thing his wand backfired, or Lucius Malfoy would have come up to the school, and at least he's not in trouble. He changes the subject again to say he heard Harry's been giving out signed photos, and jokes about how he hasn't gotten one yet. He then takes them to see the pumpkins he's growing for the Halloween feast, with the help of his pink umbrella, that Harry suspects houses his old wand. Hagrid isn't supposed to do magic because he was expelled from Hogwarts during his third year, but Harry doesn't know why. They talk about how Hagrid used an engorgement charm on them, and how Ginny had been around and Hagrid thinks she was hoping to run into Harry. Then the trio head back to the school to eat, and Professor McGonagall finds them and tells them they will do their detentions that evening. 
Ron will be polishing the silver in the trophy room, and Harry will be helping Professor Lockhart answer his fan mail at 8 o'clock sharp. Both of them felt like they got the worst deal. At 5 to 8, Harry heads to Lockhart's office and is put to addressing envelopes. As he works, Lockhart talks about his fans, and Harry hears the occasional phrase like, Fame's a fickle friend, Harry, and celebrity is as celebrity does. Remember that. The candles are burning lower, and his hand is starting to ache when he hears a disembodied whisper say, Come, come to me, let me rip you, let me tear you, let me kill you. He jumps and says, What? and asks Lockhart about the voice. Lockhart has no idea what Harry is talking about and assumes he must just be getting drowsy since he's been there nearly four hours. Harry gets to leave and heads straight back to the Gryffindor common room. Ron isn't back yet, so he gets ready for bed and waits. A half hour later, Ron returns, complaining about his muscles seizing up and describing the slug attack he had all over a special award for services to the school. He asks Harry how it was with Lockhart and Harry tells him about the voice and they can't figure out what it could have been. The movie starts out overlooking the lake and the castle, then transitions to the Gryffindor Quidditch team walking out to the Quidditch pitch as Oliver Wood describes his new training regime. As they walk into the courtyard, they run into the Slytherin team, also dressed to practice, and Wood confronts Marcus Flint, letting him know that he booked the pitch for Gryffindor that day. Hermione and Ron walk over to see what is going on, and Flint says he has a note and hands it to Wood. It says they have permission to practice that day to train their new seeker. Harry is surprised to learn that Drago Malfoy is the new seeker, and everyone is surprised to see that the whole Slytherin team has new Nimbus 2001 brooms. Ron wants to know how they got them, and Flint tells him they were a gift from Draco's father. Malfoy uses this as an opportunity to make a dig at Ron's family for being poor, and Hermione says at least no one on the Gryffindor team had to buy their way in. They got in on pure talent. Malfoy retaliates by calling her a filthy little mudblood, and Ron tries to curse him, saying, Eat slugs! Instead, his taped-up wand backfires, and he is thrown backward onto the ground, where he starts spewing up slugs. Colin Creevy tries to take a picture, but Harry tells him to get out of the way. He and Hermione take Ron to Hagrid's, where Hagrid gives him a bucket and tells him better out than in. He just has to sit and wait for it to stop. Hagrid asks who Ron was trying to curse, and Harry explained what Malfoy called Hermione, but he didn't really understand why it was so bad. Hermione tells Hagrid that he called her a mudblood, and explains to Harry that it means dirty blood, and is a really foul name to call someone who is muggle-born. Hagrid tells Harry that there are some wizards like the Malfoy family who think they are better than everyone else because they are pure-blooded. Harry calls that horrible, and Ron calls it disgusting as he pukes a slug into the bucket. And Hagrid goes on to say that it is Codswallop, and there isn't a wizard alive that's not half-blood or less, and they've yet to think of a spell that Hermione can't do. He tells Hermione not to think on it and gets a little smile out of her. The scene transitions to Harry sitting with Professor Lockhart, helping him answer his fan mail. As Lockhart signs photos and shares gems with Harry, such as, Fame is a fickle friend, and celebrity is as celebrity does, Harry hears a disembodied whisper saying, Come to me. He asks, What? And it becomes very clear that Lockhart did not hear the voice too. He concludes that Harry must be getting a bit drowsy and reveals that they had been there for nearly four hours, saying, Spooky how the time flies when having fun. Harry looks around and responds, Spooky. 
This section lines the order of events back up fairly well, though it does leave parts out to streamline it for the film. The book starts out summarizing the rest of their first week of school to give the readers a feel for just how rough of a start it was. Harry has to keep hiding to avoid Lockhart and Colin Creevy, though he does have a harder time avoiding Colin since they're in the same house. And then Ron is still struggling with his wand and even hits Professor Flitwick between the eyes with it, causing a large green boil to appear. So that's cool. Yeah, I can't imagine that going over very well. Yeah, they didn't really get into any other detail about it, just used it as some color to illustrate the week they'd been having. But it probably didn't go over well. Harry was so glad to make it to the weekend, and the trio was planning on visiting Hagrid until Olive Herwood wakes him up at the crack of dawn for Quidditch practice. This is basically where the movie scene starts in, though we don't see Oliver Wood waking Harry. It just starts right in on the team walking out to the Quidditch pitch, and Wood is describing his new training regime. Oh, Olive Herwood. How we've missed you. Oliver Wood. That's what I said. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's going on about the new regime, and and I gotta say, I'd train earlier, harder, and longer with wood. (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't? Get it? Wouldn't? Yeah. Anyway, they make it into the courtyard and run into the Slytherins, also dressed for Quidditch practice. This is quite different from how they had it in the book. For one thing, Harry runs into Colin Creevy on his walk down to the Quidditch pitch. And Colin has the picture that he took of Harry and Lockhart together, and then picture Lockhart is trying to pull picture Harry into view, and that little touch always cracks me up. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, the movie couldn't include that, since they didn't have Lockhart pose in the picture with Harry, though. Yeah, which I get why. It gave movie Lockhart a much better debut as their teacher. For sure. But... Harry, feeling like Colin is a very talkative shadow, (laughs) resigns himself to explaining the rules of Quidditch to him, and then manages to get away from him when he gets to the changing room. Colin says he will go get a good seat and heads to the bleachers. So he doesn't really get rid of them. Mm -hmm. Then we see Oliver Wood's long-winded speech, because in the book, it happens in the changing rooms. With charts and everything, and the Gryffindor Quidditch team basically sleeps through it. When he asks for any questions, George asks, why couldn't you have told us all of this yesterday when we were still awake? And Wood was not happy about that. I totally understand why the movie streamlined it the way they did, but I just would have loved to have seen Oliver Wood's intensity and his charts. Like, (laughs) honest to God. It it goes back to when we first talked about Sean Biggerstaff and how we would have loved to have seen him be more fanatical about Quidditch. I agree, and I'm sure Diana does as well. Right? None of us would have been upset with more on-screen wood. (laughs) That's dirty. (laughs) (laughs) But after George's snarky question, Wood begins rantling about how they have the best Quidditch team and should have won last year, and then they finally make it out to the Quidditch pitch to practice. They see Colin out there taking pictures and Wood worries that he's a Slytherin spy. But George says they don't need a spy since they've just shown up in person. Yeah, despite the difference in location, since the movie has this happen in the courtyard and the book is set out on the Quidditch pitch, these scenes do line up pretty well. Yeah, I think it just made it easier to get the other characters they needed present without a lot of setup. In the book... 
Hermione and Ron are sitting in the stands with their breakfast when the team finally leaves the changing room to practice. And like I already mentioned, Colin is there because he followed Harry. And in the movie, they just had them hanging out in the courtyard so they could join in the confrontation between the Gryffindor and Slytherin Quidditch players. Yep. And obviously, in both, Oliver Wood is quite angry because he booked the pitch for the day and didn't want the Slytherins on it. And in both, Marcus Flint presents a note from Professor Snape giving the Slytherins permission to practice in order to train their new seeker. But in the movie, did you notice that the Gryffindors kind of start laughing when it's revealed that Draco is the new seeker? Like, they're just kind of looking at him like, who the fuck is this little twerp? (laughs) Right. Like, I don't think he's going to be a good seeker, but... Not (laughs) worried. In the book, Fred recognizes Draco as Lucius Malfoy's son, and Flint says, funny you should mention Draco's father. And then everyone shows off the Nimbus 2001 brooms that Lucius bought them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the movie does it a little bit differently. They notice the fancy schmancy brooms that match the Slytherin colors perfectly. And Ron wants to know where they got them. And Marcus Flint calls them a gift from Draco's father. And this is when Malfoy mentions that his father can afford the best and bought them. The brooms really do match them perfectly. Do you think they make them in different colors? Like Converse sneakers? That's possible. That's kind of cool, actually. It seems like a very sports team thing to be able to do. Like professional sports teams should be able to do that, I guess. Anyway, both the book and the movie have Malfoy insulting the Weasleys for being poor, though the book focused a little bit more on making fun of the whole Gryffindor team rather than specifically the Weasleys. Malfoy was making fun of Fred and George's old clean sweeps, suggesting they could raffle them off to raise money to buy new brooms, saying a museum would probably bid for them. But regardless of how they got there, in both, Hermione steps in with some sass. At least no one on the Gryffindor team had to buy their way in. They got in on pure talent. Yeah, she steps in with her sass and her goddamn eyebrows. Oh my god. (laughs) Emma Watson, I love her to death. I love her to death. She really did grow on me as Hermione, but especially in the earlier movies, (laughs) I can't get past her eyebrows. Like, she acts with her eyebrows. You think I'm crazy because you never noticed this, but... I mean, I noticed it. It just didn't bother me as much as it bothers you. It bothers me. Oh, it bothers me so much. They're like (laughs) epileptic caterpillars hanging out over her eyes. Like, oh my god. All of her acting, all of her emotion is in her goddamn eyebrows and I can't... Yeah, what? I've held this back for a really long time. Can you notice? Let's just keep rolling. But eyebrows. Fine. Yeah. Crazy eyebrows or not, (laughs) Hermione's sass is on point. And Malfoy has no other recourse than to access his Nazi von douchebag the second powers and call her a mudblood. The book describes a huge, a huge reaction (laughs) to his choice of words. Yeah. Fred and George try to tackle him, but Flint blocks their way. Alicia Spinnet screams, How dare you! And Ron yells, you'll pay for that one, Malfoy. The movie understates this scene so much, though. Like, the the people around look shocked, but the only real reaction is Ron pulling out his wand and saying, eat slugs! Which we talked about last week, how he said that as an insult or a threat to Malfoy in the book, not necessarily as a curse. Mm-hmm. It was a fun little bit of foreshadowing. 
But despite Ron's actual lines being different, because he said, you'll pay for that and pulls out his wand and not eat slugs. Yeah. But the outcome ended up being exactly the same. Yeah. Curse backfires and Ron ends up on his ass spewing up slugs. Yeah, the movie definitely had him spewing them. And I actually found it a little bit difficult to watch. <laughs> the book describes it more as belching up slugs. I don't know how you do that, though. Like, how would you burp up slugs? It's a Technicolor yawn. Ew, that's even worse. <laughs> that's what my brother always says. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, in both, Harry and Hermione take him to Hagrid's. And Harry has to tell Colin to get out of the way because he wants to take a picture of the ruddy regurgitating Ron. Ruddy regurgitating Ron? Try saying that five times fast. Ruddy regurgitating Ron. 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 And that's our title right there. Works for me. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> well done because I, I sure as shit couldn't have done that. The witches switch swatches. <laughs> Sometimes I can say things. Sometimes I can say things, and sometimes it takes me 12 takes. <laughs> but anyways, in both, Harry and Hermione are taking him to Hagrid's, though in the book we get another Lockhart sighting. The trio hide behind a bush as Lockhart exits Hagrid's hut, and he's clearly giving Hagrid instructions on how to do something he obviously already knows how to do, and then offers him a signed copy of his book that he's surprised he doesn't already own. Yeah, the movie does not have that. They omitted quite a bit of the extra Lockhart color, but as per usual, it wasn't really important to advance the story. They just go straight to Hagrid's and he gives Ron a bucket and tells him, better out than in. Yeah, once Lockhart is out of sight, they knock on Hagrid's door, who answers it initially looking annoyed because he's worried that it's Lockhart back again. But once he sees it's the trio, he's happy and he has them in. And says the same thing to Ron, better out than in, but he gives him a large copper basin rather than a bucket. We also get to see a fun side conversation about what Lockhart was doing there. And to Hermione's chagrin, we get to see Hagrid criticize him. Yeah, the books definitely spend some more time spelling out just how much of a fraud Lockhart is. And I think the movie was trying to make it more like a big reveal, which we'll talk about when we get to that part, but I didn't. I mean, you still knew he was an idiot the whole time, just not as much. Oh, yeah, for sure. This part of the book also gave us some foreshadowing about the Defense Against the Dark Arts job, because Hagrid tells us that Lockhart was literally the only person willing to take the job, and that people were starting to think that it's jinxed. Hmm. But then he turns the subject towards Ron and asks who he was trying to curse. Which is basically what it launches right into upon their arrival in the movie. The actual words that they use in the conversation that they have is pretty close to one another from the book to the movie, but they mix it all to hell. Who said what? Right? It started out okay mm -hmm. with Harry saying that Ron was trying to curse Malfoy for saying something bad that he didn't really understand. And in the book, Ron speaks up between slug burps to explain that Malfoy called Hermione a mudblood. Yeah, and then in the movie, Hermione is the one to say he called her a mudblood, which is, is fine. She did. She heard him say that. She would know that much. Yeah, it's a change, but it's a relatively minor line steal of Hermione's. But then 
The movie ramps up the musical dialogue and completely derails the lines from the book to the movie. (laughs) In the book, after Ron tells Hagrid what Malfoy said, Hagrid turns to Hermione to confirm it. And she expresses, well, that she could tell it was rude. She didn't know what it meant. And then there's movie line stealing Hermione, who goes on to explain to Harry just what a mudblood is. How the fuck would Hermione know what a mudblood is? Hermione has no idea what a mudblood is. Right? She's a muggle-born. Yes! She's a muggle-born who would never have encountered that word before. I mean, maybe. Just maybe there's a possibility that she could have read about it in a book, but it seems really unlikely that she'd come across a slangy slur published in many of the books that she likes to read. Yeah, and not only did Hermione steal lines... They had Hagrid stealing lines as well, because he is the one to explain to Harry about how some pureblood wizards think that being pureblood makes them better than everyone else. And while Hermione and Hagrid are stealing lines, Ron is stealing almost the whole scene with his slug puking. Truthfully, I didn't entirely mind Hagrid taking Ron's lines. Mm -mm. But I really wish that Ron hadn't been reduced to just slug puking comedic relief. Exactly. Basically, everything that Hermione and Hagrid say in the movie during this scene was actually Ron's line in the book, and it really shows the kind of person that Ron is. Because despite being pureblood himself, you can see that he doesn't buy into that line of thinking. Yeah, this really took that away from him by changing up the lines. Although, Emma's teary-eyed line delivery was, I have to admit, quite sweet. Yeah, and she managed to keep her eyebrows under control for this scene. Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) Thank God. Another difference is that in the book, Ron specifically mentions that the idea that pureblood is better is rubbish, and he uses the fact that Neville can barely stand a cauldron up the right way. And then Hagrid says that they haven't invented a spell that Hermione can't do. Ron goes on to call it a disgusting thing to call someone, and points out that most wizards are half-blood these days anyway, or they would have died out. Ron does get to say it's disgusting in the movie, but again, it's basically just comic relief, because he's saying it as he's vomiting up a slug, which is, of course, also disgusting. So it really could have been about either. Burping slugs? Disgusting. Blatant slurs? Disgusting. Stealing lines? Disgusting! Everything is disgusting. But Hagrid flat out says that there isn't a wizard alive today that is pure blood. Oh, and every time I see that part, I'm just sitting there like, wrong, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. So wrong, Hagrid. Though, movie Hagrid also says there isn't a spell Hermione can't do, and then tells her not to think on it. Which is where the section of the movie scene in Hagrid's hut ends. The book continues on for a bit more with some extra flavor. Hagrid says he doesn't blame Ron for trying to curse him, but it was probably good that he didn't succeed, or Lucius would have shown up and he'd be in trouble. (laughs) Then J.K. gives us another little touch of her random hilarity when Harry wants to point out that trouble doesn't get much worse than belching out slugs. But he can't, because Hagrid's treacle toffee has cemented his mouth shut. Which also gives us another example of why they shouldn't trust Hagrid's cooking. Though at least toffee tends to be sticky like that. I'm not as appalled by this as I am by stoat sandwiches. Right, Justin? 
Those poor little stoties. You and your stoats. Honestly. You shouldn't eat them. They're cute. But anyways, (laughs) in the book, Hagrid also teases Harry about Lockhart saying he's giving out signed photos, takes the trio to see the pumpkins he's been growing for the Halloween feast, and teases Harry some more, this time about Ginny. He says she was there earlier looking around the grounds, but he thinks that she was hoping to run into Harry at his house. And goes on to say that she wouldn't say no to a signed photo. I know that this isn't important to move the story along, but it is such a nice touch to the story. And it really shows us the relationship that Harry and Hagrid have. Like, it's a total Funkel Hagrid moment. And it would have been so adorable to see in the movie. I wish they would have kept it. I know. (laughs) Plus, this part also included a little trip to the Department of Backstory when they reminded us that Hagrid isn't allowed to use magic because he was expelled during his third year at Hogwarts, though Harry doesn't know why. Hmm. It's almost like they were bringing that up because it's going to become important later on. Dun dun dun. What? But after that, the book scene in Hagrid's hut finally ends, and they head to the Great Hall to get lunch, but are intercepted by Professor McGonagall in the entrance hall with information about the detentions they will serve at 8 p.m. that night. Ron will be polishing the silver in the trophy room with Mr. Filch, and Harry will be helping Professor Lockhart answer fan mail, and they both feel like they got the worst deal. Yeah, the movie just transitions right from Hagrid's hut straight to Harry in his detention with Lockhart. And as Lockhart signs photos of himself, he tells Harry that fame is a fickle friend and celebrity is as celebrity does. Did Lockhart just bastardize a Forrest Gump quote? Seriously? Like, <laughs> stupid is as stupid does. Yeah, pretty much. Celebrity <laughs> is as celebrity does. <laughs> now I'm only going to hear that in Forrest Gump's voice. <laughs> Now I'm only going to hear Forrest Gump say his line in Lockhart's voice. (laughs) After all, stupid is as stupid does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Though, in the book, Lockhart said these exact phrases as well. It always bothered me how the movie scene structured this part, because... In the book, these were just a couple examples of the things Lockhart was saying to Harry throughout the whole detention. Harry was just addressing envelopes and mostly ignoring what was coming out of his mouth, and he just happened to catch those few phrases. Yeah, the movie did set it up as though those were just the only things that he said. Obviously, streamlining to save time, I'm sure, but other than that, they were pretty similar. Yeah, the only other difference was that when Harry heard the creepy disembodied whisper, the book version was way darker. It said, come, come to me. Let me rip you. (laughs) I'm trying to do a creepy disembodied whisper and it's not easy. How's that going for you? It said, come, come to me. (laughs) Stop laughing at me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I really didn't mean to. I can't do a creepy whisper. It said, Come, come to me. Let me rip you. Let me tear you. Let me kill you. I looked at your face. Don't look at my face. Well, you moved and the the movement caught my eye. Come, come to me. Let me rip you. Let me tear you. Let me kill you. There, I'm sticking with that. The movie whisperer, he only said, come to me. You're better at the creepy whisper than me. 
but you also didn't have to go on as long. And I didn't laugh at you to distract you. <laughs> but I'm wondering, do people not even hear the basilisk like hissing? Or do they think that it's just a normal noise for an old castle? I would imagine that an old castle has a lot of really odd sounds, especially with ghosts and peeves. True. As well as portraits and suits of armor that can move on their own. Yeah. But this would make a good Potter pondering. I'd love to know what our keepers think. Yeah, let's do that. But aside from the slightly less creepy whisper, how Harry reacts and then Lockhart reacts to Harry is pretty much spot on. Harry asks what? And it becomes clear that Lockhart didn't hear the voice and just thinks that Harry is getting tired since they have been there nearly four hours. Which was our trivia question. Sure was. Can I just point out, too, that... If their detention started at 8 p.m. and he's been there nearly four hours, that makes it damn near close to midnight. Yeah. Like, why is it that they're allowed to be out of bed for punishments? It makes no sense whatsoever. Never thought about that, but yeah, you're right. Moving on. The only real difference here is that in the book, when Harry says what, Lockhart thinks it's in response to his ramblings and says, I know, six solid months at the top of the bestseller list. Broke all records. And it's just another example of how useless and clueless he is. And it just cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, the book really does hammer it in hard, too. In the movie, he says, spooky how time flies when one's having fun. And Harry looks around and responds, spooky. And that's where this episode's movie scene ends. The book just barely goes beyond this part, but it does show us Harry heading back to his common room and waiting up for Ron to get back to tell him what happened. We also get a subtle bit of foreshadowing when Ron mentions he had another slug attack all over an award for services to the school. Though the first time I read this, I had no idea that meant anything. Yeah, she is really good about putting things like that in. And we'll talk more about it when we get there in the story. The chapter basically ends here with Harry and Ron pretty confused about the voice Harry heard and wondering why Lockhart couldn't hear it also. Which brings us to the actors we get to see for the first time in this film. As we already mentioned, we saw the return of Sean Biggerstaff as Oliver Wood. Ah. All of her wood. <laughs> oh, Captain, my Captain. <sighs> Once again, I love him. Like, I wish, I still wish they would have let him be a little more fanatical. Right. I think he could have pulled it off. I think he could have too. And I think it would have been so much fun to see him just giving a long-winded lecture with charts. Right. Exactly. I, I would have loved it. But, I mean, I understand it kind of took a back burner, but I still don't like it. I think it's messed up. Right. But Sean Biggerstaff, as an actor, I think with what they did give him, he did really well. Oh, yeah. Yet again. <laughs> and we're saying this only partially because we think he's attractive. Only partially. Only partially. Only partially because I've had a crush on him since I was, like, 19. It has nothing to do with our crush on him and everything to do with the fact that we just think he could have brought even more to Oliver Wood, that we wanted to see him on screen more. Facts. <laughs> it, totally. It was all about his acting ability that we wanted to see and nothing about that adorable, adorable face. Right. That we just wanted to look at all day long. Facts. Definitely. <laughs> we also saw the return of Jamie Yates as Marcus Flint, even though his performance was completely overshadowed by his teeth. 
Yeah. I like that's I mean that is all that I could see right when I looked at him. Very true. Didn't matter what he was doing, didn't matter what he was saying. It's like only thing happening in my head was going teeth. <laughs> <laughs> in the book they do mention that he's part he's he might be part what troll or something like that and that's why his teeth are all crazy like crazy and everything. But honestly, I think it was just they were just trying to make him less attractive, and that's the only way they could do it. <laughs> yeah, without those teeth, he was nice to look at. He he's a pretty dude. Like he's a he's a very pretty dude, but he also plays an asshole very well. Yeah, he definitely had that snotty bully thing going mm-hmm. on for him, and that's really who Marcus Flint was. Like that's what made him a good Slytherin captain. No offense to Slytherins, but I'm that was the letting it go. That was the way they were portrayed in the book, mm-hmm. predominantly as bullies. Yeah. And, like, if you made it to be the captain of a sports team, you're probably going to be among the top of those bullies. Right, so, yeah, you're going to be you're gonna be the dick. You're going to have the... Captain Dick. What? <laughs> captain Dick. Captain Dick. <laughs> Marcus Dick. <laughs> So it worked out. It worked out well. He played it well. He reminded me of asshole jocks that I went to high school yeah. with. You know what I mean? Like that's With what really I'm bad teeth, but yeah. Yeah. Because that's all like teeth. That's... Yeah. It's definitely teeth. So much with the teeth. <laughs> teeth are so bad. <laughs> and of course, there were other actors throughout the scene, uh, but most of them we already saw or... They didn't have any lines, so we're not... Right. You had the rest of the people on the Gryffindor Quidditch team and mm-hmm. the Slytherin Quidditch team. And, you know, they had screen time. Like, you got to see all of their reactions to everything. You're, like, the snottily showing off their brooms or the the slightly shocked expressions on their face that I still say slightly since it was so... It was so underplayed from what the book had. I would have liked to see Alicia Spinnett have that chance to, like, how dare you? Yeah. They were more shocked when the slug thing backfired on him. They were more shocked when he went flying. Right. Which was funnier, so that's probably why they put the focus on that. Yeah, but at the same time, if you're trying to show how bad a word is to call someone, like, if you're trying to show that, I feel like that's where you should put the emphasis. But again, that's just them turning Ron into the comedic relief, so... Right. And that'll bring us to our Potter pondering, which is when Harry hears and understands the basilisk, do people not hear it hissing, or do they just think that it's a normal noise for an old castle? Yeah, so we'll post this up on our Facebook page and our Twitter, and you guys can let us know what you think. Mm Mm-hmm. That'll bring us to this week's Sorting Hat story, which is from Laura Widdas. She writes... I'm a Ravenclaw, and my wand is a cypress wand with a unicorn hair core eight inches long. My Patronus is a St. Bernard, which is my dream dog. That's cute, but they're very drooly. They are pretty drooly dogs, but they're adorable. (laughs) I first started reading the book at school, and by the time the first film came out, I was working at W.H. Smith's Books. I was asked to dress as Hermione in my now husband dressed as Harry Potter. And it just went from there to queuing at midnight for the books and now to having an influence of Harry Potter in every room of our house. It's also been a lovely way for me and my daughter to really bond over something special. Aw, that's so cute. Right? 
And if you saw the picture that I posted on our Instagram and Facebook, it's Laura's daughter, Sophie, that I made the Hogwarts acceptance letter for since her birthday plans got canceled due to COVID-19. They live in the UK, so I really hope it arrives in time. Me too. I love that she's bonding with her daughter over Harry Potter. Like, I want that to be me and Ginny one day. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Laura. Yes, thank you. It's such a cute story. I love that you and your now husband dressed up as characters together. It must have been such a great bonding experience. Mm -hmm. And if any of you other keepers out there listening would like us to read your Sorting Hat story on a future episode, you can email it to us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com. Let us know your house, your wand, which is the wood, the core, and the length, how you got into Harry Potter, and anything else that you might want to share with us. Please do. And that'll bring us to this week's trivia question, which is, how many times was nearly headless Nick hit in the neck with a blunt axe? The prize for the first one who responds with a correct answer and the code word hashtag properly decapitated will get a bitch is a witch, motherfucker's a wizard, a Just Keep Rolling, or a Pride sticker. Another way to get a sticker is to rate and review us. If you are an Apple person, you can do it through the Apple Podcast or iTunes app. If you don't have Apple, you can write a recommendation on our Facebook page. Then email us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com to let us know you did, and we will get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it. And don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook at JKR Podcast and Twitter and Instagram at Just Keep Rolling. Following us on Podbean at justkeeprolling.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. If you would like to support us as a patron for extra perks, you can go to patreon.com slash justkeeprolling. As always, any support you can give is greatly appreciated. And join us next week when we talk about Chapter 8 the death day party, and the corresponding film scenes. Thanks for listening. We hope you hear us again. I'm Katie. I'm Ellen. Until the next time, just just keep keep rolling. rolling.